Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Today we are talking about the new Netflix movie, The Two Popes, and I have joining me today a very special guest, John Waters, coming all the way across the Atlantic from his home in Ireland. John, welcome to Creedal Catholic. Thank you, Zach. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to have you here, and I'd like to tell your listeners a little bit about you, and if I missed anything, please please uh, stop me and let me know. We can direct listeners to uh, read and, and engage with more of your work. But John started his career in 1981 with the Irish music journal Hot Press uh, and was a columnist with the Irish Times from 1990 to 2014. He's the author now of 10 books, uh, has written a number of plays for stage and radio, and has also contributed occasional pieces to the American magazine First Things and Spectator. He's a permanent research fellow at the Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, USA. And I encourage you to check out his latest book. It's called Give Us Back the Bad Roads, and it's an account of Ireland's unhinging, as John describes it, suddenly, almost overnight, sometime around 2012, after decades of ideological conditioning by rogue media elements. Uh, I'm going to link to this book in the show notes, but maybe before we get started here, John, can you tell my listeners a little bit more about Give Us Back the Bad Roads? Yeah, well, it's kind of uh, fundamentally yeah, the, the story of Ireland in the last uh, decade and the kind of meltdown, you know, because Ireland like, it seems that culturally and otherwise it sort of fell off a cliff and... and uh, it's also the story of my own um, departure from journalism because I left journalism in Ireland five years ago in the wake of the uh, gay marriage referendum, uh, which wasn't just a gay marriage referendum in Ireland. It was actually a vote to change the meaning of marriage as expressed in the Constitution so as to equate you know, two men or two women with a man and a woman capable of having children. And I, I drew the line at that and, and uh, campaigned against it. But uh, my, I had even before that attracted a lot of odium uh, uh, purely on the basis that I was a Catholic in that connection from the LGBT uh, lobbyists and, and so on who wanted basically to, uh, to remove me from the discussion if they could. And so... Uh, there was a big saga about that. And so the story tells that saga, but it also splices it with kind of, it's it's an essay about Ireland. It's done as a letter to my father, kind of trying to explain to him, who's been dead for 30 years, trying to explain to him, as it were, what happened to his country and, and, and what was my role in it or, and, and, and what, and also it sort of reflects back on him and our life together and the country we belong to and, and all of that. So it splices that with the, the more recent story. So it's dark and light and, and uh, it's try, it, what it really tries to do is to say, you know, uh, uh, what it was like and what it is like now and, and what's happened uh, in between, what actually happened to make this radical difference occur. Well, it sounds very interesting. And I was looking at this book on Amazon, as I mentioned to listeners, I will link to it in the show notes if you'd like to check it out yourself. But I think I'm going to pick up a copy. I've not read it, but it looks very interesting just hearing you talk about it, John. And when I was on Amazon, I was looking at some of these reviewers and it has very positive reviews who are, are talking about the, you know, here, here's a quote from one, an invaluable insight into the extraordinary changes in Ireland's culture. And it's, it's easy to be removed from uh, all of the changes going on within Ireland's culture 
from here in the United States. But I know that there have, there have been a lot of tumultuous changes over the last decade or so. Yeah. And uh, and there are changes that I'm not too too familiar on. So I would like to pick the, pick up this copy and learn a little bit more about it. Well, well, I think it's it's actually in a certain sense more important than that. I don't mean the book, but I mean the story, because Ireland is kind of, has become kind of almost like a an experiment, a petri dish, for a new kind of country, as it were. You know, a kind of a woke country, uh, because a lot of this is happening under the influence of. American multinational companies, particularly the big tech companies, which all have their uh, European offices, headquarters in Dublin now, in my in the capital city. In For Ireland. tax purposes, right? For tax purposes, yeah. exactly right. And and and, but you would imagine that people who come basically to avoid tax would kind of keep their mouth shut. And but they do quite the opposite. They they start trying to run the country, and it's almost as if they now see it as some kind of, you know, laboratory guinea pig, you know, a laboratory rat, which they can actually do experiments with. And essentially, the rest of us, those of us who kind of think, well, Ireland should run itself by its own lights. I've been mostly basically told to shut up and, and clear off. And, and we say, well, hang on, we're not going to do that. It's not going to be that easy to get rid of us uh, because we have things to say and our, you know, our people have things to say. So that's kind of what the book is about, you know, that, that the, the battle we've been fighting and, and to be honest, losing, to be frank about it, we've lost. Uh, I've, I've been involved in three referendums in the past decade and we lost all three, uh, which were critical because they attacked uh, Fundamental rights. There's just there's five articles in the Irish Constitution, Articles 40 to 44, which are natural rights. They're not there by virtue of the Constitution. They're just simply recorded within the Constitution, and they ought to not be uh, violable. They ought to be inalienable and imprescriptible. But by virtue of being written down, the government has taken liberty to, by writing them out, uh, basically write them off, which is actually unlawful. And we've been trying to make those cases as well, to no effect, to no avail, largely because our media is deeply corrupt. And and that's why I stopped being a journalist in Ireland, because I couldn't bear that the journalist, I mean, when I was a kid, the word journalist had for me an, an aura of excitement about it because of the people I admired sure. uh, growing up and reading the papers, that I couldn't believe, I, I, if you said to me that I might one day be a journalist, I would have kind of fainted, you know, as a, as a kid. It had that effect on me. And now all I can think of with that word is, you know, that it is a, a, a debased, appalling word, an appalling profession. Because when I see that my, my colleagues have become essentially activists, ideological activists, for a very malign cause or very malign causes, and are intent upon essentially destroying their country if necessary in order to achieve these ideological ends. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think we're seeing something uh, in some ways parallel happening here where you know, when, when the stakes become so high and the political environment becomes so polarized, journalists really can't help but be sucked into that vortex and become activists on one side or the other. So, yeah. so the, you know, the phenomenon of the uh, sort of glorious uh, career or calling of journalism is, I think, disappearing here. Um, probably much the same way you're describing it in Ireland. Yeah, and, and there's an added uh, difficulty in Ireland. You know, in the United States, you know, you have two sides in your political spectrum. And in, even in media terms, you have, you know, National Review or, or you know, uh, publication like that, The Spectator has uh, recently started up, uh, which kind of at least give a more moderated uh, interpretation of events. In Ireland, we have a completely monolithic media, but we also have no opposition. 
Mm. Essentially, our parliament uh, has only one side in it now. You know, you have the, the, the two main parties are on the same sheet. They're actually supporting each other. They don't oppose each other. And all the, the fringe elements are all left wing. So essentially, it's a singular voice. There might be, I say, three or four people in the entire parliament, two houses of parliament, who take in a different view and can barely be, head, be heard. And even they are demonized for doing as little as that or being as small as that, as an element or faction, and and as we are. So this is the extraordinary thing, that they don't just want to win the argument, they want to expunge the other argument completely. They want to make, actually make it present as if if the, their version of reality is the only possible version to exist. And as long as there was one person dissenting on the other side, they want to destroy that person and bury them. And that's kind of what we're dealing with. And I think that's true in America as well. But at least you have a lot more people uh, fighting on the other side. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. And it sounds like it sounds like uh, what's happening in Ireland is a sad thing. But I encourage my listeners to pick up, give us back the bad roads to check that out. But I think I'll use a, I think I'll use a comment you just made, John, to uh, to launch into our discussion for today. We're going to be talking about the two popes, the recent Netflix film that was released, limited release last August, I think, at the Telluride Film Festival and then had a limited theatrical release in November and uh, was, in, was released in the U.S. and the U.K. And then December uh, was released on Netflix. So I only just saw this recently. John, you wrote a review for this movie or of this movie for the journal First Things. And uh, that caught my eye when the movie came out and I read through that. I thought it was very interesting. The movie itself uh, builds itself as being inspired by true events. And the comments, yeah. I, the comments I wanted to to use of yours as a launching point was your versions of reality comment with respect to uh, Irish politicians. And I think we can talk about versions of reality with respect to this movie as well. And we'll get to that. But, uh, but the movie portrays uh, Pope Francis having submitted his letter of resignation to Benedict and not, and having the Lancer, the, the letter not answered, then following that up with a trip to Rome uh, to visit Benedict at his, uh, his summer retreat. And the two engage in this, um, you know, kind of, some view as witty and charming repartee throughout the movie and share uh, share struggles and joys with each other, et cetera. And so many people who see this, I had a friend, you know, message me as soon as it came out, you know, you should see this movie. Um, many people see this as a, as a charming, wistful account of these two men who are uh, leading the church through troubling times. Um, yeah. And on one level to, uh, to this, the modern mind, I think it certainly looks that way. There are, there are fantastic performances in this movie. Anthony Hopkins uh, and Jonathan Price both received Academy Award nominees, Price as a, a main actor and uh, Hopkins as supporting actor. And the movie itself also received a nominee for, um, for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, and so on one level, it's an enjoyable yarn. Uh, but on another level, um, the level that I think I would concur with for the most part, uh, and it's a level that you uh, seem to espouse in your review for First Things, this movie is, as you call it, dangerous and um, misguided. So, yeah. so I want to pitch, pitch that question to you, John. Can you tell us why you think this movie is dangerous and misguided? Well, uh, you, you put it, you set it out very well, Zach. I mean, there's, there's two kind of, as it were, tram lines that, on which the movie might be, you know, run and... and, and and observed and and but you see there is between between those two there is an ethical question uh with regard to a movie like this which you know it says inspired by true events well the word inspired there is a is a profoundly weasel word you know because uh, uh it sucks the life 
out of the idea of true events completely because I mean inspiration well what is that I mean you can go anywhere uh, with inspiration if you're simply inspired by true events uh, being faithful to true events is a different matter and that's the key I mean I've written uh, uh, a couple of screenplays uh, never got made but I've gone through and also some plays which were based on true events to some extent and there is, and I've also written books which were uh, obviously to do with true events and, and uh, uh, true real, real people. Uh, and I've, so I've actually wrestled with these questions uh, quite for quite a long time. You know, this core idea of what are you entitled to do in presenting true events as drama? Uh, because, you know, there is this issue that, that cannot be denied that translating true events onto a screen is actually a very complex business and necessitates a lot of uh, foreshortening and, 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 and conflation. And, and you know, uh, you, know you, you can't put everything in. You know, reality is much too rich uh, and abundant to be contained in the clean lines of a drama. You know, you would just clutter the screen, clutter the script, clutter everything with uh, uh, facts. And so you have to pick and choose. And that's legitimate. And then, you know, but, but underlying that there has to be a responsibility to the true line of the story. In my opinion, you can't make things up that are fundamental to what happened in reality. And unfortunately, everything about this movie is made up in other than that the names of the popes are correct. The names of the two main characters are correct. Uh, uh, but this, the premise of the story that that uh, uh, Bergoglio went to visit uh, uh, Pope Benedict in Castle Gondolfo before Pope Benedict announced his resignation is untrue. That, that didn't happen. Uh, they didn't have that meeting. They didn't spend time together. They didn't have any of these discussions. Uh, now, it might still be legitimate to imagine that such a thing happened if you were faithful to, to actually the history that has brought them both to that point. But the movie isn't even doing that. And then in all kinds of uh, sneaky ways, it moves things around in history just to be, I suppose, to obtain material for their conversation. But it takes it from the future more often than it takes it from the past. And, you know, how can that be in any way helpful to people understanding who don't necessarily know the full truth? And this is the real problem, you see, that this is a story that has run for 15 years since the election of Pope Benedict in 2005. Immediately that started when, when, he, when Pope Benedict came in. He was this, you know, almost, you know, created as this rogue figure, you know, this uh, God's Rothweiler, you know, and, and this kind of dark, uh, you know, reactionary figure, which actually could not be further from the truth of Benedict if you understand his history and understand his writings and if you understand his positions. Uh, but nevertheless, this is the way he was painted in the media. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I, I knew this because when I was writing about him in the Irish Times, occasionally I would write about what was going on with his various trips abroad and so on into England and to Spain and so on. And I found it extraordinary. On one occasion, to give an example, I remember when he went to, to Spain, 
uh, I was reading the reports afterwards, and, and the reports were, were all everywhere, in, in Ireland, in uh, Britain, in America, and so far as I could make out in the various European countries. The headlines were all the same. And they were something like, uh, Pope attacks abortion and homosexuality in Spain. And my response, my attitude to that was, well, you know, he's quite entitled to do that, and maybe he did, but I'm, I, I, I'm actually quite surprised that he did that because he wasn't there for that purpose. He was going to the Sagrada Familia uh, in Barcelona, and and that was the, the the main focus of his trip. And so I decided to start to investigate. So I got hold of all of the statements, all of the speeches, all the homilies that the Pope had delivered while in Spain, and. There was nothing. The words abortion and homosexuality were not used at all. The only thing remotely close to it was a, a press conference he had given on the po- on the plane, or some remarks he had made to journalists on the plane, in which he talked about Spain before he landed, and as being uh, on the borderline between the secular and religious worlds. And he used the phrase, I think, aggressive secularism in that context. And that trans- that phrase, it seemed, that was the only possible connection, remote as it is, that I could find that you would say, well, what does it mean that he was, re- oh, he was be referring to abortion and, uh, and homosexuality? That was the only connection. And it wasn't in, you know, his whole point was actually uh, to the contrary, that this was a very interesting moment and a very interesting place to be for the reason that the positivity that, that could be seen in the secular imagination and in the religious imagination had a place that they met and, 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 and could be examined in this situation. So, you know, it was quite fantastic that all of the papers everywhere, it was like all the journalists in the room had asked each other, what are you going to write? And they said, well, isn't this about, that means abortion and homosexuality, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll all write that. And that's what happened. Now, that's been the story of the the papacy of Pope Benedict from the beginning. Right. And now you see the second part is in 2013, when he resigned. uh, When Pope Pope Francis replaced him, we had this new pope, new hope. Yeah. Uh, scenario. I, like I haven't heard that before. I like that. New Pope, New Hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well that's the journalists like to create, to generate cliches, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was the one at the time, and, and uh, or one of the ones at the time. Uh, the shoes were the other one, of course. Uh, uh, they make, a, they make a prominent appearance in the movie. <laughs> the shoes. The shoes are all over. They're walking all over. They're, they're just, their footprints are all over the movie, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, which is itself extraordinary. We'll come back to that point because it's, it's, it's so funny and so ridiculous. But, you know, that, that this simplistic uh, view of Benedict and, and Francis was immediately launched. Now, I have to tell you that in the beginning, uh, I was struck by by uh, uh, Pope Francis in a different way, and I remember writing in the first few months of the of the uh, pontificate of Pope Francis, I wrote about him, and the Tim, Tim, what I was trying to get at was that as far as I could see, there was an awful lot in common between Benedict and Francis, that their sense of of, of like Christianity in the modern world, which is very much Benedict's theme was held in common between them, but that the language was so much different, mm-hmm. that Benedict's language was a language of a theologian, of a philosopher, uh, and, and was quite, you know, uh, uh, literary. Whereas uh, Pope Francis spoke colloquially, he spoke in anecdotes and, and, and reminiscences and, and, and you know, more, uh, in a more popular way, if you like, or a more populist way, perhaps you might say. And it's very interesting that I discovered then that they had in common a mentor, 
that nobody was talking about. And that mentor was a priest called Father Luigi Giussani, who was the founder of the movement Communion and Liberation. Uh, it's an Italian movement, uh, which is an extraordinary uh, movement in Christianity because of its development of the theme of reason uh, in, in, in relation to Christianity and, and the, the meaning of Christianity in, its, in, its, in, in the modern world. And there's very strong influence. To, uh, you know, uh, Ratzinger was very close to Giussani. And in fact, said the the even in the, just weeks before, days before he was elected pope, he actually said delivered the 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 the, the funeral homily at the homily at 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 Giussani's funeral in February uh, 20, 2005. And uh, Bergoglio was also a follower of Giussani, and I found that really fascinating. And in fact, I ended up meeting Pope Francis in, in uh, May of 2013, three months after, two months after he was elected. And I spoke alongside him in St. Peter's Square in front of like 300,000 people, something like that, which is an extraordinary experience. And, uh, you know, I, I, he didn't speak very much English and, and I didn't speak very much Italian. And uh, so we didn't have much to say, but I did meet him several times in the course of two or three days. And he was finally very friendly, as you would expect, and very likable, personable man. That's all I can say about him in, in that context. So insofar as, you know, the, the way that Jonathan Price plays him, I can't really quarrel with that in the sense that uh, my own experience. However, what I will say this, is this, that what I know from people who have seen both pops, I've never met Pope Benedict. Unfortunately, I would love to because I, 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 I'm an, a, a huge fan of his writing and of his thinking and of his personality. And people tell me that, that who know him, that, that he is the gentlest man imaginable, the kindest man imaginable. And anything I've seen of the way he treated his students, uh, you know, the way that he treated, for example, Peter Seawall talks about in the books, he wrote four books of interviews with, with Benedict, mm -hmm. with Ratzinger Benedict. And he said that when he was, at the time he did the first interview, he himself had become, had, was a, Seawall was an atheist. But he said, Benedict never asked him. Ratzinger never asked him the question at that point. And eventually, in the course of their relationship, Seawald converted. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. It's a That's fantastic amazing. story. Wow. It's an amazing story. Uh, but Benedict never said, you know, what are you? Are you one of us or not? You know, right. none of that, which would, you would expect from the kind of character depicted. God's Rottweiler, right? Yeah. Yeah, nothing like that at all. Uh, and this is the, the terribly unfair thing about all of this and, and, and of this movie. The movie per, uh, perpetuates that uh, mythology. Uh, and, uh, or you might even say demonology. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's uh, I think, grossly unfair on that basis. Well, I think that your, your two words that you use to describe this in your First Things review, and I'll also link that to, to, uh, for my listeners in the show notes here, but the two words you use that struck out at me or stuck out to me are dangerous and misguided. And I think misguided applies to the way that this movie is so historically inaccurate, right? Yes, and and yes. yet builds itself as inspired by true events. So yes. when people say inspired by true events, they think, oh, wow. So we might not know what was said exactly between Francis and Benedict, but he must have gone to the Castel Gandolfo. They must have had a close friendship prior to yeah. Benedict's resignation, all that stuff. But none of yeah. that's true. I mean, as you pointed out, the true events here are that, and I say this a little bit tongue in cheek, but the, the true events here are that there, there was a man named Jorge Cardinal Bergoglio and there was a man named Pope Benedict the 16th, right? And yeah. um, 
I mean, more accurately, the true events really are that Pope Benedict XVI resigned. And so what the what the author of this screenplay, before this was a play called The Pope, what the author of the screen, screenplay did was just imagine what might have transpired in an alternate universe, right? This isn't even up for debate about whether or not this actually transpired. It's what could yeah. have transpired in a parallel reality. Yeah, well, if you take a comparison, which I think is a good one in a way, I don't know if you remember, um, like there was a movie called The Queen uh, about, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago. I haven't seen more. it, no. It was based on the events following the death of, Queen, of Princess Diana uh, in the UK. And it was about the royal family. So it went into the royal family to, to look at those extraordinary events that happened in those days after the death of Diana, when the queen didn't appear and she was in Scotland. And now, you know, I, I can't come down cleanly and say that that was a holy uh, correct and, uh, and, and ethical uh, production. I, I've seen different versions and there seems to be a mixed view on that. But nevertheless, what you can say about it is that they set out the, the, the timelines in a correct way, you know, the sequence of events, the chronology, the place, so that people are not placed in a place they were not. And they, are not have, they don't have people speaking to people that they didn't speak to about certain things. So, yeah, when they put them there, into, whether it's in Scotland or in the, the, the uh, um, Buckingham Palace, and the meeting is happening, then they, they, the, the screenwriter has to imagine what happened, what transpired at that exchange. And that's okay. But at least you have the overall sense that everything that happens somehow coheres with what eventually happened on the public, in public view, in plain sight. Right. And I, I think that's a, a fundamental criterion, you know, that at least it has to add up. Now, you know, you can still play ducks and drakes with things in the dialogue. But nevertheless, if you have, at least you've gone a long way towards assembling a, 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 a truthful account a, or a useful account, if you can say, well, all of the meetings that we, we all of the scenes we created uh, are based on actual scenes that we know to have actually happened. Right, exactly. That's that's not the case in the two popes, which is why it's misguided. And then your second word is dangerous. And people might read that and think, really dangerous? I mean, come on, this is just a movie, etc. But the reason it's so dangerous is what you've been um, what you've been saying already today, that it portrays these two men so woefully inadequately, especially Benedict. And yes. as as uh, Jonathan Price, as Pope Francis says in the movie, you know, this is one this is this involves one point two billion people. Right. Who look to the pope as their leader. And so, you know, there are there are scenes where Benedict just comes across looking like sort of a, a senile old man who's totally lost touch with who God is and what he believes that portrays him, portrays him so terribly and inaccurately. And the, da the danger is that, you know, you have, you have Catholics and non-Catholics who are watching this and thinking, Oh, a movie inspired by true events. And here's Benedict, that God's Rottweiler guy, the guy who was always in the news for attacking abortion and, and, and things like that. And here he is. He can't even, he can't even, you know, really hear God or understand God at all. Yeah, well, this is the point. I mean, you know, there is nothing whatsoever in any public record to indicate something as radical and as dramatic as that Pope Benedict uh, had arrived at a point ever that he did not believe in God or was not certain of God's presence. Nothing he has said remotely approaches such a thing. Yeah, and actually, I want to play this clip real quick for listeners so they can hear the scene that we're talking about. You know, the hardest thing is to listen to hear his voice, God's voice. Sorry, even for a pope? And perhaps especially for a pope. 
know, when I was a young man, hundreds of years ago, I always knew what he wanted of me, what God wanted, what purpose he had for me. But now, I don't know. Perhaps I need to listen more intently. What do you think, Cardinal Bergoglio? I think perhaps I need a, a spiritual hearing aid. So, John, here is one of the greatest theologians of the 20th and 21st centuries being portrayed in this film, building itself as inspired by true events, uh, as someone who has completely lost his way, lost his purpose, and you know says he needs a spiritual hearing aid. And that's totally ridiculous. Can I make a, a terrible confession? And I don't know if this is either, either fanciful or, or on my part or, or what. But, you know, the only thing that has ever I've ever read that in any way approaches that suggestion, ironically, was contained in an article I wrote myself. And let me explain to it. I wrote an article in First Things. It was the very first article I wrote for First Things about three years ago. And I started off by telling this story of working and to give an indication of what it was like to be a journalist in a secular newspaper in Ireland. Not long after uh, Pope Benedict announced that he was going to stand down as Pope, I got a call one day from a senior editor in the Irish Times, who was a guy I had a kind of a brittle relationship with, you know, always kind of winding me up and and, and, and different words, trying to. And, and you know, uh, uh, so he rang me up one day in quite a fin- friendly tone and he said, you know, oh, John, how? I said, listen, uh, after a few preliminaries, he said, you know, uh, I know, uh, by the way, so I was speaking to a senior diplomat in the uh, Italian embassy uh, recently, and he told me something very interesting about Pope Benedict. And I said, oh, really? Yes. He says, he told, yes, he told me why uh, Pope Benedict resigned. And I says, really? Yes. He says, yes. He says, it's because he doesn't believe in God anymore. And I, I, I knew, like, to me, it was, I told this story not because there was any basis in it, or not because, uh, uh, you know, I believed it, but because it was in some way indicative of what uh, people, uh, you know, in this context think they can say right. and, 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 and how they behave. And that's the closest I've ever seen, uh, actually, or heard to, to what's actually in the movie. Now, I wonder, did Jonathan, uh, Anthony Price uh, or what's his name, Anthony uh, McCartan, sorry, the screenwriter, read my article and think, oh, that'll make a nice scene. You oh know, goodness, I wonder, yeah. I, am I to blame? I don't know. You see, like this, but this is, that's as close, that's how far from reality it is. Right. Now, this is the point, you know, that, uh, and, and I think this is, this is why I said those views were used misguided and dangerous. You know, because I was aware of, the, from the very beginning, I went along with my notebook and I wrote in the dark and, 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 I was, you know, immediately aware of what they were doing. I, I wasn't sure which way it was going to go. I had no read no reviews of it, and, and I, I, so I was an, had an open mind. But immediately, I, I began to see the way it was going. And, and, but nevertheless, what I found about myself, I was sitting there in the dark, in a cinema, on my own, in the seat. And in a certain sense, you know, in a cinema, you're always on your own. Uh, you know, uh, um, it's a little bit like life, you know, you go in alone, you come out alone, yeah, you know, it, yeah. you're on your own while you're there as well. You're in this big chair and, 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 
and you're before this huge screen. It's not like any other medium. You know, it's not like a, a laptop or a TV screen. It's actually a very, very different situation. You're confronted by something that is an approximation of reality. Yeah. And you were right there. And the thing is, I, I was aware of myself being sucked into the two characters, even though I knew they were not who they were purported to be. I was interested in the, the way they were engaging. I was interested in the way they were, these two men were, as I would if I was sitting on a bus watching two men having an interesting conversation uh, and just being curious, just nosy. And it sucked me in. And I was watching myself, in a certain sense, enjoying the movie. And I was, okay, periodically was said, but this movie is complete bunkum. It's completely false right. from beginning to end. This is why it's dangerous, you see. That people who don't know what's true and what's not true, who only know perhaps little bits and pieces that they've read in the newspapers, which generally speaking correspond with the, the narrative within this movie, then they're going to think this is going to be consolidated for all time in their minds. And this is going to be as if they were right there when it happened. Right. And these things were said. Pope Benedict doesn't believe in God. Uh, he wanted for, uh, he wanted Bergoglio to succeed him because he wanted the church to change. This is the direct opposite of everything that Pope Benedict has said because uh, we know, and this is the central, the other thing then, and it's a very interesting thing, that, you know, we were talking beforehand and you said something really interesting, which I thought was so true, that actually two different people hearing these dialogues, a Catholic and a non-Catholic, for example, or a Catholic and a lapsed Catholic or a hostile Catholic would hear two different conversations. Well, well let's let's actually play a, a clip real quick that can kind of set that up and we can talk through this. This, this is the this is the salesman clip with uh, with Francis's metaphor or, or then Bergoglio's. You said the church is narcissistic. Oh, was that another misquote? No, I did say that. It seems to me that your church, my church, our church oh. is moving in directions that I can no longer condone, or are not moving at all, when the time demands movement. Holy Father, I no longer wish to be a salesman. Salesman? It's a metaphor. A salesman for a product. A product? A salesman for a product that I, <laughs> I cannot in all conscience endorse. That you don't believe in. So I think that conversation is a great example of how you can have two different people who are watching this and come away with very diametrically opposing views of what is going on there. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, because on the one hand, you see, this is the, 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 the completely different views of the same thing, almost like the same phenomenon, that on the one hand, you have the person who sees, yes, it's quite sensible, is it not? The church should be moving with the times. That makes sense. And, and that's what the church, you know, that's why the church is in difficulty. And that's why, you know, uh, this this pope has held it back. And then Pope John Paul before him uh, held it back. And, and now we need a, a new direction because it's so out of touch. It's fallen behind uh, history. And you can hear that, and then you think, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, yes, if that was a, you know, a, a newspaper or a TV station or a political party, you, yeah, of course. But, ah, it's the Church of God, the Church of Jesus Christ. Okay, well, uh, then we go to the other perspective, which is that, as Ratzinger would immediately tell you, well, you know, the Church is a constant th thing in, in history. It's eternal. 
it's not a victim. It's not a, a creature of the world. And it's divine. It's not something to be it's sold divine. by salespersons, right? Yes, exactly right. And it's not. It's not. You can't. You can't change it. You can't uh, simply say, "Oh, the times have moved this way. Let's catch up on the times." That's the whole point of it: uh, is to actually remind us that, regardless of where the times go, there is an eternal set of truths that that we can find our bearings by. Exactly. And and there, this is what Ratzinger always said. And uh, so this is the crucial part of it, that, you know, we will hear, each of us would hear this, this thread that we would understand in, in what it's, uh, is happening. But the whole implication then of the plot line is that the story, the idea of catching up with the world is vindicated by events. That of course it is necessary, and Benedict now accepts that it is necessary. That he was actually holding everything back, holding everyone back, and that he has done damage to to church and therefore to the, the, the faith and so on. This is preposterous. It is monstrous. Completely monstrous. Yeah, and and the uh, the rest of the clip that I didn't have time to play right there uh, in that. Uh, Jonathan Price playing Francis goes on to say that, you know, he no longer feels like the church is a part of the world and we need to be engaged and connected. And, you know, one person who's watching that might think, yes, exactly. The church needs to be more involved in the world, less, less involved in high minded things, right? More connected, et cetera. Someone else might say, no, no, the the church is divine. The church is in this world, but not of it, right? The church is uh, the, the kingdom of God on earth. That's why we have the sacraments, et cetera. So, so two very different views of the church even there. Uh, but I think, you know, conversations like that are difficult for a non-Catholic or a lapsed Catholic or a loose Catholic to, to understand and grasp. And they're going to come away thinking, oh yeah, this Benedict guy, you know, let's, let's count up the knocks against him now. Uh, likes wearing expensive shoes, <laughs> uh, losing his faith in God, uh, thinks that all change is compromise, uh, thinks that the church is a product to be sold, etc. And has and, never heard has never heard of Ava. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, doesn't know who Eleanor Rigby is. Eleanor Rigby, is. exactly, yeah. Who's that? Yeah. What? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, like... Uh, oh, and his, his favorite TV show is about a, a German shepherd detective dog, and he just watches that every night while he eats his dinner alone. Yeah, I, where did that come from? I have no I idea. Know. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that part is true. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, like, but the thing about the, the Beatles and and Abba is interesting. I mean, because uh, you know, I, I again have an insight into this from a personal perspective. I, I, I just to, not to involve myself in it. But about five or six years ago, uh, I I produced uh, an exhibition for the meeting of Remini, uh, uh, which is a massive event that happens in in, in the in Italy every summer, and. They do these huge exhibitions, which are like really vast things and, and, and all kinds of multimedia and, and so on. And we did it about the title of ours was uh, Rock and Roll as a Search for the Infinite. And it was actually inspired by uh, a, a, a talk that uh, Ratzinger had given way back in 1985. Oh, wow. He questioned the the whole basis of rock and roll, and and questioned that it, it he said that it it, it drew man into the lower uh, instincts, 
and not out of the high, uh, as, uh, unlike class, classical music uh, uh, by comparison, which brought us upwards. Rock and roll brought us downwards. And I said, well, and what I was doing, I, I was saying, well, I can see why he would think that. And I can see it's that kind of thing you get where, you know, when you're watching, if you, even if you like rock and roll you, you, and you watch a particular kind of movie, and they put a rock and roll band into it. It's always grotesque and gross and, and awful. And, right. and all of the subtlety that you might have seen in a particular artist is missing. Uh, and I think that that was perhaps something of what he had perceived. And, as I, and I can quite understand. I mean, I often feel like that now going around the place, sitting in cafes, listening to sure, you yeah. know, pipe music. God, this is terrible, you know. Uh, but I said, there's more. And I wanted to basically explain to, to, to the Holy Father, as it were, uh, what, what, what else was there in, in artists like uh, uh, Johnny Cash, for example, or, or, or uh, even Elvis and, and, and uh, different, uh, you know, U2, uh, Mumford and Sons, these, these different artists who had different perspectives and, and were, had an intensely, I thought, Christian understanding of reality, which they expressed in music and used in music in a sense as a kind of a, a Trojan horse right, to take yeah. these, these questions and these impulses into the public square where right. they were disapproved of and present them to people where they could be received, as it were, heart to heart. Yeah. So, uh, 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 so I, I knew that, you know, but Benedict didn't write, didn't make that talk without knowing what he was talking about. And, and an awful lot of what he was saying made absolute sense. And I was very impressed by the way he understood, you know, the dangers, the risks, and, 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 and you know, to some extent, the, 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 the attraction, the appeal of the music. So to, to, to portray him in this way was just childish, that he hadn't heard of ABBA or he, he knew about the Beatles, but he didn't know Eleanor Rigby. He thought she was a real person or something like right. that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, childish uh, is a great word to describe it. I think his his character in the in the movie sort of vacillates between this um this kind of childish childish figure who lacks understanding uh and an old you know borderline senile man who who also lacks understanding of course the yeah. two the two commonalities between those two portrayals are that they both lack understanding and so we come away from this thinking oh, benedict what a fool maybe he's a kind and harmless fool but still a fool yeah that's right and and and, and in fact the trajectory of the narrative then and this is again the, the the seductive part of it. It shows them that whereas they start off being, in, as it were, at loggerheads, that Bergoglio and Benedict, they grow fonder of each other, right? And in the end, they they become friends. Well, and actually, more more than more than friends, I'm going to play one more clip, and this is where uh, Benedict is telling Francis that although he's had a trouble hearing God's voice, now he can finally hear it. And surprise, surprise, it is none other than the voice of Cardinal Bergoglio. I cannot play this role anymore. I'm so sorry. Since I was a child, as a boy, I always felt his presence with me at my side. For my entire life, I have been alone, but never lonely until now. I'm so sorry. Yeah. But now I can hear his voice. These last two days, I've heard his voice again. I'm glad. Yes. And the voice is the last one I expected to hear him speak with. It was your voice. 
So there it is, John. It was yeah. your voice. That's right. I mean, this is uh, fantastical. I mean, uh, uh, but there's also another thread that goes along beside that is, which is if you think of the hugs, if you remember that at the very start where Bergoglio tries to hug uh, uh, the Pope, he, Pope Benedict rejects it, yep. pulls back from it, yep. right? But in the end, he does, he accepts the hug. And, and they actually tango, right? <laughs> Yeah, and they tango. You know, it, it, it is as though he has accepted entirely the Bergolian worldview and the Bergolian personality, and 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 has been you know seduced by it into this that he's he regrets himself, he regrets his life, he regrets everything he believed, um, and you can see it, in that sense, Anthony Hopkins actually plays that part extraordinarily effectively, shall I say, if I can use that way, because. He plays, you know, Benedict almost like a child, overawed by this commanding presence, and you can see this very clearly in the in the the goodbye scene. You know, yes. where it's the way that 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 even the way Hopkins walks and 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 the way he moves and the way he looks, it's very very cunning, if I can use that word, and and you see, so that that there's these all of these kind of uh, insidious sort of. Um, extrapolations and interpretations and the creation of images, the creation of actual scenes that will ingrain themselves in the mind of the uninitiated viewer who will come away with a view, well, I was there. I saw that. At some deep level in their consciousness, they were like, I was there and I saw Pope Benedict play, in effect, homage to Bergoglio the man he wanted to nominate as his successor insofar as he could do so. Uh, that This is preposterous, it is nonsensical, and it is shocking, yep. actually, uh, uh, because there is no basis whatever in it, any of it. And so uh, th th this is why I say it is a very dangerous movie. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I didn't think that Hopkins was a very was suited to the part anyway, but that's actually at this point in our discussion quite a... You know, almost like a trite thing to say. Right, yeah, for sure. That's yes. the least. S of saying them I would have cast it differently is is a is, is the least of your considerations when you're talking about a yeah. movie like this. Yeah, exactly, and 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 uh, so uh, uh, I really, uh, you know, but when I, what really struck me as, as quite uh, shocking as well was when I started to read up some of the things that Ashley McCartan, the screenwriter, had said because he wrote the book and he wrote the play, and he wrote the the screenplay. And, uh, you know, he seems to think that the movie is just fine and dandy and that it has been, you know, scrupulous in, in, in his attempts to achieve balance. Right. Well, let me just deal with the question of balance because it's interesting. You know, one of the most shocking things in it as well is that in the screen, in play, there, is, there are scenes where the two men hear each other's confessions. And this is, you know, as it were... A situation where if you were to ask Anthony McCartan, the screenwriter, or the, the producers, they would probably say that here we have a very even-handed treatment of, you know, a warts and all presentation of the two characters because you actually witness them confessing. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I was going to bring this up. This is this is something that I think every viewer needs to understand about what's portrayed in this scene. Yes. Well, 
Now, the, the, so the, in, in, when, when Bergoglio confesses, he, he's the centerpiece of his confession. You can hear it fully, and it is to do, although there is also intercut with uh, a reenactment of the events he's talking about, which is uh, flashbacks and so on, which is, relates to the dirty war in Argentina in the 1970s, in which when he was uh, uh, the head of the Jesuit order. As quite a young man at the time, and and uh, was the superior to to quite a few, a lot of priests, and and uh, some of whom were involved in political uh, dissidents against uh, the regime, which was a, a hugely tyrannical regime. I don't know if people would remember this, but it was like a really, this you know there were those appalling, those awful uh, scenes that we saw, and there was a movie called Missing, I think. Uh, uh, I think that was no, that was sorry, I beg your pardon, that was Chile, but. There was some. They disappeared. There was many, many people who were regarded as dissidents who disappeared. Simply disappeared off the face of the earth. So it was a very dangerous place to be a dissident uh, uh, in those years in, in Argentina. And uh, Bergoglio uh, did not, shall we say, cover himself with glory in the way he behaves in those times, because he seems that, uh, for whatever reason, and it's not entirely clear that he, his intentions were not good, but that in his attempts to, 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 to deal with the regime, he may have compromised some of his own priests in his attempts to deal with the regime. And uh, some of his actions appear at least to be somewhat ambivalent and, and so on. And uh, so uh, the, some of the priests, I think, eventually forgave him for what he did and others did not and have not. Um, now, that was presented and uh, Pope Benedict, you know, reassures him to the extent that he can as his confessor and I don't know if that's an entirely uh, correct and, and, and theologically valid uh, uh, treatment of the matter. Right. But then when you get to the, to the, to the other uh, confession, which is Benedict's confession, something bizarre happens. And that is that he starts to 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 uh, confess something, some incident from his past life, which you have already gathered has something to do with clerical sex abuse, and then the voice becomes muddy. There is a distortion entered in to the to the, the soundtrack, and and he, so you can't actually hear what he is saying any longer. But you can see his moves, move, lips move, and you can see a look of, of sheer you know horror, uh, anguish, and, and horror on his face. Yes, and then on an absolute ag uh, horror on the face of Bergoglio as he's watching, like he's uh, gasping at what he's being, what he's hearing, and when it sort of fades back out into reality, then out of the soundtrack returns to normal, there's something you pick up about a particular case, which is the case of Marcel Marciel, who was a, a notorious pr uh, priest who was uh, uh, found to be guilty of uh, uh, abusing many uh, teenage boys as head of the Legionnaires of Christ, founder and head of the Legionnaires of Christ. And the insinuation or the assertion is that Benedict, that Ratzinger, as prefect of Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, was remiss in, in dealing with that matter. Now, the contrary is the case in on every single count. First of all, it was uh, Ratzinger who introduced new canonical structures and, and rules in order to deal with wayward priests in that regard. And he kicked out hundreds of priests for those kinds of behaviours in his time, both as uh, uh, prefect and as pope. Uh, secondly, in the particular case of uh, Marcel Marciel, 
he said he inv- had him get investigated from 2001. Uh, he initiated an investigation, uh, which went on for several years. Meanwhile, Pope he became Pope, and the year after he became Pope, the, the, his successor sanctioned Marcel. Uh, uh, Marcial uh, and had him stripped of his ministry and, and he was made to retire and, and uh, uh, he was a very elderly man at this point. He died, died two years later. So uh, in no way whatsoever can it be said that Pope Benedict was remiss in his treatment or derelict in his treatment of those matters. On the contrary, he was the most exacting and, and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, thorough uh, person that we know of in the senior uh, ranks of the, the church in those years. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought this up. It, it also, I think, is telling that the movie does not directly relay those events because I think there they know they can't because that wouldn't be inspired by true events at all, right? If you were to, to paint Benedict as somehow covering up the actions yes. of um, Marcel. Marcel. Um, but So that's why I think they have to sort of mute the sound, right? I- introduce some interference, and then we just watch... Uh, Bergoglio's face become horrified. He stands up and begins to remonstrate in front of the penitent. You know, how could you do this? Is this so horrible? And and the viewer is just thinking, okay, we heard Bergoglio's confession about his time in the Argentine uh, crisis, bad stuff. Um, but you know, maybe maybe understandable given that that he had good intentions or unclear intentions. And then we see Benedict's confession. And it's so bad we can't even hear it, right? And it's so bad that, that Bergoglio stands up and, and begins to remonstrate and sort of chastise the Pope almost. That's right, that's right. And, and, and you see, again, that the thing in relation to Bergoglio is that we know broadly that the facts as outlined are true. Right. The record is there on that. There's no disputing it, and he hasn't denied any of it. Uh, and there's been t- some tough things said about him. And it's very interesting that since he became Pope, he has not returned to Argentina. He's a very controversial figure in Argentina. He even and says Nick, that in the movie. That's that, that's one thing that's true too. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, uh, you know the movie doesn't even have the bottle, the courage, of what it is uh, presumably convinced of, to actually let us hear him say from his own mouth, "I did X, Y, or Z." Exactly. We don't hear it. Right. So, so it's it's all by innuendo, which yep. is the most insidious in, instrument you can possibly use. Correct. That, you know that that so the and yet the innocent, uninitiated viewer walks away with a sense that something terrible uh, was related, and we can only imagine what it might have been. Um, this is unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable at every level. And and so that's uh, I think the the darkest part of the movie when it, you know and I mean in a certain sense you know you know what, had I not been working in reviewing the movie I would at that point have walked out right it, it was it was pretty dark it was a dark scene to watch uh, yes. and and personally I found it angering because of all the innuendo uh, you know the guilty by innuendo type of approach that it uses with Benedict throughout um, yes. And so yes. I, I think in, in summary, let's, we're, we're about out of time here, John, I want to let you go on time, but um, maybe if we can wrap up with a few comments to listeners who may have seen the movie or, or are thinking about seeing the movie, I think my, my own injunction would be, you know, only see the movie um, to gain a more clear understanding of how our culture engages with ideas of the Catholic Church and how these wrong ideas about the church are out there. And only watch it so that you can gain a better understanding for that. I mean, there is, I do agree with you, John, that the viewer is pulled into the acting performances of Hopkins and Price. I think 
they both do a very good job acting and you do kind of find yourself in, in a rather insidious way sort of getting wrapped up into this completely fictitious and in many cases contrary to fact dialogue that the two of them have and so i think the viewer needs to be very cautious in in um engaging with those ideas but you know i, I think that it, it can be worthwhile to watch i think it was for me just because it did help me understand a little bit more about how exactly uh some of the more um crafty uh pr-minded people can construct narratives around the church that yes that, that suit their purposes I think that's exactly right, Zach. I mean, you know, this is, uh, I think for the education of people who are prepared, it's a very useful exercise to actually watch this movie and see exactly how far people are prepared to go to create uh, uh, misapprehensions about Catholicism, about figures within Catholicism to sustain the narratives that are being pushed at the moment. And the the, the strongest narrative of all is, of course, this uh, good about Pope, bad Pope uh, narrative, which has been with us now since 2013. And, uh, you know, which, frankly, you know, uh, we probably don't want to get into this, but I mean, you probably wouldn't say that the direct obverse is true of the two figures involved, but it's a lot that would be a lot closer to the truth than what we have here. Yeah, I think think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, obviously the Pope is the Pope and deserves um, due respect and obedience of faith as the Vicar of Christ. But it is certainly true that um, Pope Benedict, at the very least, I don't want to speculate about the intentions of either Pope, but it is very true that Pope Benedict, at the very least, was much more clear in communicating the truths of the Church's theology to, yes. a, to a mass audience. Um, and so, and simultaneously, as you pointed out, he did so in a very gracious way. I mean, he was God's Rottweiler, not because of his temperament, but because of his, you know, fierce defense of truth. Yes, uh, exactly. someone, someone I know here in the diocese, a priest here who, um, served, uh, served in Rome for, for some time and, and met Benedict was telling me a story about a, a group of, of, uh, students and their parents that he was taking around Rome on a trip. And then Cardinal Ratzinger came out of a building and, uh, and, uh, you know, just saw them, they were told that they would just be able to wave to him as he, cause he was, he was, uh, you know, on his way to a next meeting or something. And so his secretaries just said, you can just stand in the parking lot and you can just wave to him and you can see the Cardinal as he comes out. And so they waved and, but, but he, you know, took time and just came over to them just to say hi, shook every one of their hands and, you know, greeted them by name and all that. He also told me another story about a family that was traveling and, and chanced and chanced, uh, uh an encounter with him, uh, you know, out, outside in a plaza or something. And they said, oh, Cardinal, Cardinal, can we get a picture, please? And he said, oh, yes, yes, certainly. And he held out his hand for the camera. And he's like, where would you like to stand? Because <laughs> he was thinking that he was going to take their picture. So you know, that, that speaks to the humility and the gentleness of this incredible man. And, um, yes. you know, I, I don't want to say uh, I don't want to I don't want to compare Benedict and Francis uh, any more than I have. But I do want to say that this portrayal in this movie of Benedict is just completely false and not true to his character or personage in any respect. That's right. Yeah, I mean, like there, there was an interesting movie to be made about these two men uh, because you know if you read uh, what Pope Benedict has said about about Pope Francis since the ele- the the election of Pope Francis, he has been extraordinarily positive and supportive in everything he has said publicly, at least, and uh, we can't go behind that, and there's no reason to. Uh, so uh, the idea that, that you know, uh, there is something between them that is so divergent as to justify, you know, what happened at the center of this alleged story is completely uh, uh, misguided 
and fanciful and 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 you know a, a completely you know spurious exercise from beginning to end in fact yeah i completely agree and so we will wrap it up there john thank you so much for joining us on this episode of credo catholic before we go though i i just told our listeners at the beginning about your book give us back the bad roads i want them to check that out to understand more about what's happening in ireland but before we go could you share with your with my listeners um one one thing that we can pray for with respect to the church in ireland because you know i've read uh thomas cahill's how the irish saved civilization that catholic church in ireland has a rich and storied history and uh much of europe's catholic heritage really owes itself to irish monks who preserved and kept the faith uh in its some of its darkest uh hours in europe um and now we we have a uh, sort of return to the dark ages in some respects for the catholic church in rome or in ireland so how can we pray for the church in ireland well i i think that uh, uh, i would ask i suppose that people would pray for those who remain the small minority of people, both uh, clerics and, and lay people, who are prepared to stand up and defend the Catholic faith in the face of relentless attacks. Uh, and this is no small thing. I mean, in the recent referendums, we've seen that you know there were a number of excellent bishops who took on uh, the the might of you know the forces aligned against the church and and against those of us who are fighting these things not just the church but the truth in in the world and 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 uh, they were savaged because the resources available to the other side were just limitless I mean they were just illegally pumping money in from everywhere and usurping every known institution media politics you know corporations. You name it, they had everything on their side in the end. And so uh, a handful of, of clerics and, and bishops uh, who, who stood up, uh, I think, desperately need to be supported and, and, and to be honoured for what they have done, because it would be easy for them to give up uh, at this critical moment. And because, you know, it's an uphill battle now to go back. We've lost an awful lot of ground in the last uh, few years. I don't think it's on, 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 on you know, it's uh, uh, incapable of salvation, but I think we need to, to pray for those bishops so and, and priests, uh, because unfortunately they are a tiny minority now, even within the, 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 the hierarchy and cleric, uh, clerical uh, uh, categories of the church. Well, it's very, very sad to hear, but we will definitely be praying for you and for the rest of the church in Ireland. And might I suggest to our listeners the uh, the special intercession of St. Patrick. So he's he's always a good one to pray for, for the church in Ireland. He sure is, yeah. He, he sure is, you know. And, and uh, uh, I have to say again, sadly, that, you know, it's another symptom of, of what's happening in Ireland. But his feast day, the 17th of March, you know, has become a day in Ireland that is as far removed from anything he stood for, uh, than, as you could imagine, you know, yeah, it's, it's and, pretty far, far moved from him here as well. There's a, uh, there's lots of, uh, merrymaking and drinking to excess and all kinds of things that go on, but, uh, not a yeah. lot of masses. No, not, not a lot, not a lot of contemplation of, you know, why he became such a figure and, and what he meant to our country. And this is unfortunately the thing in Ireland, you know, that, uh, there seems to, and not just in Ireland, but there seems to be in this modern moment uh, a sense abroad that uh, all of the things we have, all the things we have inherited, all the things that have been built, which we walk through in, on a day-to-day -day basis, will remain even if we take away the foundations and throw them in a skip. You know, 
uh, that is not going to happen. You know, if you sit on a branch and you saw on the wrong side, you know what happens next. You start plummeting through space. Right, yeah. Hard to get this across to these people, you know, and, and, and going back to this movie, it's very much part of that sawing exercise because, you know, by undermining a figure as titanic as uh, Ratzinger, you know, to give him his eternal name, as it were, because right. that, that is the, the name that he, he, in a sense, will revert to in, in history, I think. Right. Uh, that if you denigrate a, a man of that stature, you do damage to the truth. I, th- I think that's well said, and I think it's a great note to end on, John. Thank you so much again for joining us. I know it's evening over there, so thanks for setting aside time out of your evening. It's a real pleasure, Zach. Thank you very much. I very much enjoyed it, and the best of luck with everything. To our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. If you want to give us feedback on this episode, let us know what you found interesting, what you disagreed with, etc. Send an email to Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. Don't forget to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And once again, thank you to our Patreon supporters, especially our most recent ones, Will and Teresa. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, God bless you. 